0: Hello and welcome to the What If It's Not Depression podcast. Whether you're here to learn about the root causes of depressive like symptoms, wanting to know more about alternative solutions, or you're a biohacker looking to optimize your mental health and brain, this podcast is for you. I am Dr. Achina Stein and I will be your host on your journey to resolving depressive like symptoms and optimizing your You are listening to the What If It's Not Depression podcast hosted by Dr. Achina Stein. Welcome to the What If It's Not Depression podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Regina Stein, and I am interviewing Dr. Vaish Sarati. Dr. Vaish Sarati is a functional nutrition practitioner and science and math teacher in multiple settings. She comes to functional nutrition and education with a mission to reframe health, cognition, and optimal function for children with disabilities. believes that sound nutrition and an equal education are the birthright of every child. Her perspective is shaped by her own autistic, non-speaking 14-year-old son with Down syndrome, who is a published poet and author. Her 2019 TEDx talk, Who Decides How Smart You Are, about the value of assuming intelligence in all kids, has been hailed as mind-blowing, powerful, and eye-opening by parents and practitioners alike. Vaish also hosts a podcast called Functional Nutrition and Learning for Kids, where she interviews thought leaders from education, learning, functional medicine, as well as disabled people with different communications. Welcome, Dr. Vaish Sarathy.
1: Thank you, Tina. Thanks for
0: having me here. And let's start, let's dive in real quick and start with your own journey with your son or your son's journey yeah
1: so as as you mentioned my son is now 14 he'll be 15 in a in a few days actually so let's um and he he's autistic. he has down syndrome he's non speaking so he has multiple disabilities and uh, and i say this very casually now so because it, it's really not a big deal to me anymore but when he was born um and this is generally the case when you talk to other parents that have kids with uh, let's say down syndrome because you know at birth that that the child is down syndrome, that there's very dire prognosis, you know, doctors will come and tell you with a very serious face that they're sorry, there's a lot of crying going on, there's a lot of despair, you know, it's, it's almost like you've entered this world of grief and sorrow, and like you've, um, <clears throat> as though that, as though something terrible has happened. And that was really where I was when Sid was born, um, for a good part of a year. And um, when, you know, eventually you accept the diagnosis, but, and that we didn't have a plan or anything in, in, in mind as such. And for for a while, I was also in denial because I was pretty sure that all of this doesn't mean anything because I have a really huge belief that I am very smart. So I was like, there is no way that my son cannot be smart. Right? right, so I, right. I, sometimes arrogance helps a little bit, but, but as he was as he got, you know, when he turned three and when we saw other kids with Down syndrome, it was hugely apparent that even when compared to other kids with Down syndrome, that Sid was lagging behind, not just in communication, but in, it seemed to me in understanding as well. So there's two parts to this story. There's one is the, is the, is the understanding of his cognitive level. And the other is his, what we call dysregulation, right? Is as, as but I'll, I'll focus on the latter part first, okay. as he turned four, um, he also accumulated a diagnosis of autism at the time. And this was a time when he was um, starting to, you know, have fits of laughter, he would sit in the corner of a room, rocking back and forth, and he would just be laughing for almost hours on end. And I had no idea what was going on. And I was new to I, I wasn't new, I had no idea what functional nutrition or even just regular nutrition I didn't know anything and at the time he was eating um, what I'll call a standard Indian diet which Mm -hmm. was mainly um, you know homemade chapatis which is just like you know whole wheat tortillas and a lot of whole milk and uh, basically wheat and dairy over and over again He wouldn't eat anything else but we thought it was homemade so all was great right So we were very happy with the diet we're giving him it was with this child that couldn't go to school, couldn't sit for even five minutes in school, couldn't pay attention, couldn't, you know, he would dissolve into peals of laughter. It was, it was scary because we could tell that he didn't want to be. Doctors would say that, oh, your child is laughing and not crying. That must be a good thing. No, it was not a good thing. He, he's, this is an uncontrollable, um, almost drunk laughter. Right. And now, of course, we know that it could have been an East overgrowth. It took a naturopath told us that it was probably a systemic yeast overgrowth and a, some medication at the time, um, a drug did help. But over time, these symptoms kept coming back. So <clears throat> there was, it was kind of a desperate time in India when we were there, we didn't have access to our doctors. He was completely a mess, laughing throughout the day, unable to even hold himself up because he was so dysregulated that he would fall down into peals of laughter. He couldn't sleep, he couldn't eat. Um, and I had no idea what to do. So I just sat in front of a computer and did research.
2: Mm. And when we
1: came back to the US, I decided that at the point enough was enough. And we, one fine day, we moved to the GAPS diet. This was from a standard Indian diet to a GAPS diet. GAPS and diet, that bega-
0: yeah. yeah. Just tell, yeah. why don't you tell the audience what the GAPS diet is? And Real the quick.
1: GAPS diet is a um, is a grain free diet. It's it's basically a version of a specific carbohydrate diet where we limit complex carbohydrates. In other words, anything complex carbohydrates are you know are basically they're called disaccharides or polysaccharides or multiple sugars connected to each other. The only carbs that you can eat on a GAPS diet are simple sugars like fruits and honey.
2: Mm-hmm. And then
1: so basically the diet mostly consists of nuts, seeds, meat, sugar and not sugar. Sorry, am right. I saying? Fruits <laughs> vegetables yeah. and vegetables and non starchy vegetables and so on. Right. Um, yeah. but, just so, so, this was just a- so
0: people know that GAP <clears throat> stands for Gut and Psychology Syndrome Diet. It's a natural treatment for autism, dyspraxia, ADD, dyslexia, ADHD, depression, schizophrenia. And it's all about, it's all written about in a book by Natasha Campbell McBride. She's the, she's the author of that book and that diet. Just so people know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I, I don't anymore believe that it's a treatment so much for at least autism because I don't believe that it needs to be treated like that. But it's definitely a treatment for a an inflamed gut, at mm-hmm. any rate. So and that it did. Mm-hmm. That began our journey into the world of, of exploring how food is medicine. We did not end up staying on the gaps diet for too long. And that that's another story of how sometimes diets can be too restrictive, and that's not necessarily a good thing either. But six months on the GAPS diet, followed by a standard anti-inflammatory diet, Mm -hmm. which I'll talk about more later, but that really helped my son to come back to his center. So in the sense that he could at least sit without kind of completely dissolving into into really a laughing mess. So it would just help him just keep his body comfortable. Mm -hmm. And that was the, that is, it was very clear to me at the time, I thought that he was missing out on so much by not eating wheat and dairy. Every time we would try to bring uh, forbidden food back and then putting forbidden in quotes here, but it it would be disastrous for us. Mm. So while I have, I I want to
0: highlight, I really want to highlight just how much food is poison and food is medicine just for I mean, because people don't realize how much food can really affect your brain (laughs) as Mm -hmm. well as your body so yeah it's perfect example yeah
1: great yeah and I think it's the there's no matter how many you know you can have supplements or you can have medication and often you know we think supplements are great and they can be but no matter how many times you eat a supplement you're always eating more than you you know food is the single most frequent intervention your body is getting there is no getting away from that there is no supplement that can you know, there's a common saying, right? You cannot supplement a crappy diet and so on, but it is just impossible because of the frequency with which food is hitting your body.
0: Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, So it's, so that diet is always the first intervention you can make so much can change. So very quickly, you know, if Mm -hmm. you make dietary changes and I think it's worth doing an elimination diet or gaps diet, pick something, <laughs> pick something, pick Start something. with something. Uh, but an, an anti-inflammatory diet ultimately ends up being the diet that most people end up being on. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: Pick something and keep experimenting for a while. I do certainly believe that a diet is not the end goal. A diet is simply a means to get your child learning. This is a lesson I had to learn the hard way. Right. Because I thought a diet was going to fix my son, until yeah. I realized my son didn't need fixing. All he needed was to get into a comfortable state there where there was minimal inflammation. So now you could get to learning.
0: Right, right, and that's just one layer. It's one. It's just one layer of inflammation, and, mm-hmm. and there's other finding other layers and and mm-hmm. addressing those. So tell us more about what what other things that you found uh, to be um, impacting your son and, and some of your clients. I'm going
1: to narrow it to the areas that I focus on. So obviously like, you know, that there are multiple levels that can affect a child. So there is dietary inflammation. There's also pathogenic overgrowth. There's the growth of bacteria and, and, and yeast fungus, and basically just what we call dysbiosis, which means that there is just an imbalance of good and bad bacteria. And this is very common. Right. And unfortunately in the world of autism, the you know, it, we call it bio, functional medicine in autism was traditionally called biomed, but right. a lot of biomed has traditionally focused on medication to address dysbiosis. So dysbiosis is understood, which is great because they really understand it really well. Right. But a lot of times you're, you're pointing and shooting at the different bugs. Right. I think the awareness is slowly seeping in that, that, that is not enough, that it needs to be combined with a diet that you know, is that actively encourages uh, microbial diversity in the gut and gut healing. And there's so much of this that you don't have to point and shoot with supplements. You kind of need to, you can do that initially a little bit, but you also need to sustain with food.
0: Exactly. So there
1: is, uh, and I I see so many kids with really rampant inflammation, uh, not inflammation, infection and inflammation, but, and there's this misconception that drugs are the only way to go. But coming back to your question there's there's inflammation there is infection and um the third part um that is misunderstood and i think is a gap in the way that functional medicine is practiced in kids today is 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 the cog is what is considered the cognitive gap because a lot of medicine in children with in autistic kids and kids with down syndrome is aimed at increasing cognition but the problem is that I'm also a science teacher, like you said, and 50% of the kids that I work with are non-speaking autistic. I have yet to meet a child that actually has a cognitive gap. What I meet are kids that have extreme dysregulation. So if you have a raging fever, or if you're super, if you're sitting on a pin of a bed of needles and I teach you calculus, there's no way you're going to understand calculus. That doesn't mean you have a cognitive gap. That means you something's going on biochemically in your body that I need to help first. And I need to help the inflammation, but that has nothing to do with fixing it. I'm not, I'm not fixing your brain I'm, I'm making way for learning to happen. And that's a very different language because often we're constantly trying to bridge a non-existent cognitive gap. Right. And when we're trying to bridge that, we, the, the means can often be disrespectful to the child because a child, the child is not involved. So one of the first things that I work with when I work with clients is to make sure a means of communication is in place. So there are a few ways, many of my non-speaking kids, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> every one of my non-speaking kids, need, You know, I really encourage that, find a means of communication. Usually a low-tech device often works, like well, my son is fluent, like you said, he's a published poet, as are many other non-speaking artists. And when you can actually start building a bridge of communication, you can actually know what the child is really struggling with, as opposed to your idea of what the child is struggling with. Right. So I think that, and that's why I gave a talk about assuming intelligence, because um, until that happens, you're always trying to fix a child. And as long as you're trying to fix a child, there is a huge respect gap. There's a huge gap in how where you are and where the child is and you can you know you can you can go crazy on diet you can just and I've seen people get stuck in the gaps of a very restrictive diet Mm so I I usually follow a philosophy of something called a least restrictive diet yes you want to go anti-inflammatory yes you want to ditch the dairy the gluten the refined sugar once you're done with that the principles of working with a diet should always be a least restrictive diet Mm-hmm. and and that yep. while assuming I agree with
0: you I agree with you yeah. yeah sometimes people come to me that are on a restrictive diet and I really focus on you know increasing whatever they can and usually vegetables i mean we talked about you talked a little bit about diversity increasing diversity the best way to increase diversity is by providing vegetables <laughs> right mm-hmm. a wide variety rainbow variety of vegetables yeah, yeah. so t- talk some more about this cognitive gap how how is it that you uh find this cognitive gap i i was sort of visualizing as you were talking about it almost that there's a fog like if we if there was a fog that was uh Mm. that we were driving into you can't see things right you can so you have to do everything slower in terms of let's say you're driving a car you have to slow down you might even have to stop until the fog clears but as you're moving through the fog you're starting to see things but they're not not beyond that, and it's kind of hard to drive in that way. So Absolutely. the way you talk about it, it's like clearing the fog, so that you, you can move forward and connect on some level. So uh, that's sort of like the image. I'm a very visual learner, so a uh, thinker. So that's the image that came to my mind when you were
1: that is a about That it. is a great image. and and there are two things that affect that that affect what we perceive as cognition right one is exactly what you said there's the fog it can be um, you know gut inflammation which almost always leads to neuroinflammation right
2: Right. and you
1: know a child with um, a dysregulated um, parasympathetic sympathetic state so again if you're in a fight or flight response you cannot think about I'm just gonna bring the calculus example again. If you're in fight or flight, how am I gonna teach you math and calculus? It doesn't happen. So you can put that in the brain fog. It's not technically brain fog, but these are biological responses that are preventing you from learning. There can be inflammation, which we can put in the brain fog category, gut and neuro, and there can be which will lead to the fight or flight response. So, which is also something where you cannot learn. So that's the biochemical part. The <clears throat> physio, is it the right way? It's not almost physical slash physiological part is something that we know as apraxia, which is a brain-body disconnect, the inability to uh, get your muscles to move. Yes, this is also biological, but this is when a child like my son, he can't make eye contact and tell you that, like he can't blink his eyes and say, yes, I understand. His face doesn't move to give him emotion. So because he's smiling doesn't mean he's happy. It could be like many things are going on. He can't do sign language. He simply doesn't have the fine motor skills and therefore he cannot write. He just doesn't have control over his muscles. What we found out eventually through trial and error was using a technique called RPM to all it does is that he uses a gross motor movement where he points to letters on a letter board. He simply doesn't have the fine motor control. Speech is fine motor. Eye contact is fine motor. Everything we use in our body to communicate with a third person is a fine motor activity. And when a child has apraxia, which is, a huge, it's more than 90% of kids with Down syndrome and it's a huge person. I'm pretty sure it's an equal percent of autistic kids have apraxia. When you cannot communicate, how do you show to another person that you understand or that? So it's like um, having a computer whose display is broken, but that doesn't mean that the computer doesn't work. And while we should address the brain fog, A huge majority of the time, we're looking at a computer whose display is broken, and we're hitting that computer with, and my analogy is breaking down here, but with supplements. (laughs) (laughs) Right. With... But, you know, with 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 things like we're thinking that, okay, I'll build my analogy better. So we're thinking that there is a virus in the system. There may be, but it may simply be a physical breakdown of the display. And you have no idea what is going on in the central processing unit because you don't have a direct line. Nobody has a direct line to the brain. What you're perceiving as a cognitive gap in a child is most likely. And I'm saying this not because I'm very smart, because I've heard this. From autistics who have started spelling to communicate and have used other, this is my information from other people, and because they, they their display isn't working, right? right so, right, um, right. so yes, and there may be a virus in the system. And right. okay, that right. works very well because that virus can be a real virus or a computer virus. So with that, right.
0: but
2: uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you,
0: know, you know, in my experience with working with patients, it's usually. Foods, infections, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. toxins, and stress, and all of those affect your hormones. And so, there's Absolutely. those are the five pillars that I usually look at. And you know, there is um, uh, definitely pathways where toxins are not able to leave, or you know, have a, a, you know, they have methylation issues with methylation or issues with detoxification mm-hmm. that come up. So all of these things are layers. Uh, that can affect the brain and create that fog. Yeah. Correct. So, so after you clear the fog, how much, how much uh, is kind of left in terms of a cognitive gap, what you call a cognitive gap?
1: You know, learning isn't going to happen automatically just because you've cleared the fog. So a parent may go through a functional medicine protocol, but after that, you have to actually build the neural pathways for learning to happen. So once you know that your child is comfortable, like they're able to sit at a place, like maybe you're giving them a lesson, they're able to, there's not the sensory overwhelm. So some of the symptoms you will see when you have cleared the, the bio, when, when you've done an anti-inflammatory diet, when you've cleared, um, you know, some toxins, and when you have made sure there's no pathogenic, uh, not no, but when you have reduced the pathogenic load and so on. Right. What you might see is a child that has less sensory overwhelm, that they're, they're not so sensitive to noises or to or to touch, and they're able to um, they're able to relax into their body a little, but they're not. You know, their pupils aren't dilated, so they're in a rest and digest mode at this time. Um, now, this uh, assuming all that everything else is steady. There's many. I mean, the the diet factor that goes into this is huge. But once you're in, even like if you can manage like ten minutes of a rest and digest state for your child, then you have to build a learning pathway. So the mistake that could happen is that you think your child is going to sit and do math by themselves. No, because you have to, you have, you have to build that. You have to now start presuming competence and start giving that information uh, that your child needs, whether your child is able to show you understanding or not. And this is very key because apraxia cannot be fixed by nutrition. Mm. Okay. So apraxia is, is very, it can only be fixed by, I don't know if it can be fixed at all, but it can only be helped by, um, by motor learning right okay so that is and that may still remain for some people they mean for my son still is severely apraxic but he's also extremely regulated so you can look at it you can look at him he's very balanced internally there's no disturbance he's very emotionally regulated he's just um, he's just stable okay but he's apraxic he can move his hands He, he there's so I do have to find alternative methods for learning So it's very important that you understand that when I say you, I mean, a parent understands that you clear the brain fog through nutrition, but at the same time, you understand that apraxia is real. And then you may have to use other movement therapies to work with apraxia and you may have to continue learning. So the three foundations for supporting your autistic child is, or, or your dysregulated child is food is medicine. Number one. Mm -hmm. number two is movement therapy and this can be things like reflex integration rhythmic movement um, just anything that just integrates the body together movement therapy and the third one is presuming competence because you can do everything to your child but if you do not believe your child is capable of learning you think your child has to be fixed there's only so far you're going to go
0: right oh absolutely yeah you have to have hope for your child, because then also when they see that Mm -hmm. you're there, they might even try harder because you believe in them. But Mm -hmm. with obviously, you you know, it's finding out what those limits are and having kindness and compassion towards them when they do reach their limits. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so what are some other things that you have found that require these types of interventions besides apraxia? Is there any, are there other things that you've noticed that really requires alternate ways of approaching it once you, once you clear that brain fog or, you know, that fog that's, uh, you know, affecting your ability to learn? I usually work with kids that, that have, uh, you know, that
1: have a diagnosis of autism or Down syndrome. So I almost always see apraxia in my practice, but, but if your child has, doesn't have apraxia, they might have um, ADHD, they may have, um, um, you know, they may have what's diagnosed as a learning disability, which I don't believe in so much because I think there are teaching disabilities, but I'm not really sure that there are
0: learning
2: disabilities. <laughs> I,
0: so I, I love that. I, I yeah. Like sometimes it's, they're not being taught in school in a style that the mm. child is able to learn in a, in a, in a method where the child is able to learn, you know? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. yeah. And we're, we're evolving, we're evolving as a society where um, just the diver- neurodiversity of kids coming in. Every kid is learning differently. And I know it's not possible for teachers to teach differently for every child, but that is that is something that's going to evolve. Our education system is in the early stages of evolution and it's going to have to be rapid if if we want to reach our kids. When your child does not have a praxia, let's say <coughs> they're a fully motor functioning uh, child with ADHD or a diagnosed learning disability. The place where we start at that point is, I, I mean, dietary, dietary intervention becomes even more important, right? So they're clearing the fog is like almost 90% dietary uh, intervention, especially blood sugar balance. And it's so simple. It's such a low hanging fruit, right? So it's such, um, it's such an easy thing to do, but people are always going to the next supplement that can, you know, um, right. you know, that can optimize brain function. But the supplement the, the thing that can really optimize blood brain function is stable blood sugar levels in Absolutely. your child.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's a root uh, cause. It's a, it is a major uh-huh. cause. And, uh, you know, I work to get people's digestion in order, you know, mm-hmm. getting that going as well. So you're right. I mean, what you're talking about is that there are some functional medicine practitioners that sort of practice, In a traditional medical model, instead of using medications, they're using supplements and treating symptoms downstream, as opposed to looking upstream and looking at root causes. That's what you're describing. And and I I was more talking about even um,
1: regular allopathic physicians, but you're right that it's true in functional medicine as well, that we're often just hitting more upstream causes or down. Downstreams downstream causes yeah. with supplements. What you're saying is that yes, you can't really yeah. hit it
0: with supplements because yeah. you can actually rectify so many things with blood sugar balance, not we just can. brain function. There's lots of yeah. things that improve with brain, you know. So lots of I problems. feel like if you just
1: started there, we could like fix 90% of what's going on in society right now. So you could like mood mood swings, um, you know, um. panic attacks, attacks, focus, um, you know, just learning. And every time somebody comes and says that my child isn't able to focus like, what did they have for breakfast? Oh, they had cold cereal and milk. Can you change that to a high protein breakfast? And it's amazing how many stories you hear about, like, that's the only thing people have changed. They're still eating pretty inflammatory down the day, but like they've changed their breakfast to, I don't know, something with eggs or, um, like, you know, a protein smoothie or something like that. And then kids that had been sleeping at 11 o'clock are, um, uh, these are kids that I've worked with, like kids that used to fall asleep in the middle of the day are not doing so. Kids that used to go hyperactive are not doing so. So you can actually, amazingly blood sugar balance can cause energy crashes in kids. It can also cause not blood sugar balance, but imbalance can cause hyperactivity as well. So it's, it's, it's so many areas that just a simple intervention can Yes. And all you need is fat, fiber, protein.
0: Right, right. So. Yeah. And so many kids actually go to school yeah. without breakfast. Yeah. No breakfast. Right?
2: So, so true. Yeah,
0: yeah. They don't, they have to get up so early in the morning that they literally roll out of bed and get on in the car or on a bus. And because they just don't have the time for breakfast. Uh, otherwise, right. they have to get up even earlier because of how, how early school starts for some people. And some people have to travel very far to get to school. So mm-hmm. it, uh, it is, it does become a problem and they don't even eat breakfast. So, and then mm-hmm. lunch is like 15 minutes. You only have 15 minutes to eat lunch <laughs> and relax. So uh-huh. I agree with you that the environment kind of needs to change in terms of the learning environment, <laughs> not just speaking disabilities. It's also the environment in which we have our children learn uh, needs to change. And you're right. And you know, you could have the healthiest
1: school lunches uh, in place. But if you only have 15 minutes to eat them, your kid is going to choose the biggest bang for their buck in terms of time, which may be a bag of chips. So there's there's a lot of variables in how well your child eats. So um, and yeah, so it, it is it is unfortunate that we we live in a system that encourages kind of just quick and fast, right? So, mm-hmm.
0: right, right. So, uh, you talked about. I think you talked about the sample. Uh, the, sorry, the fundamentals of supporting attention and hyperactivity. Those three things, right? Mm-hmm. Did you finish talking about those? Because I'm. Um, you talked about <laughs> there nutrition. are. Um, let me let um,
1: on a broad level the fundamentals of uh, supporting anything or adhd or autism is is diet movement therapy and presuming competence but within the world of diet i would say the most fundamental of of supporting your child and if that is something that you could change right now is to have a blood sugar balancing breakfast Mm -hmm. so and there's more i mean that like you we could take this through i mean i teach a program that goes through many steps of how to use food as medicine Mm -hmm. Um, but But at the bare minimum, because this is something that you don't need to read a book for, you don't need a doctor to tell you, you don't need anybody's uh, okay to get to a blood sugar balancing breakfast. Mm -hmm. And what that means is no refined sugar uh, for breakfast. I mean, ideally never, but at least Mm -hmm. for breakfast and um, ideally have a savory breakfast. And that's why I've been doing challenges and stuff, because I think in this country, the, I mean, the savory breakfast is so underexplored. And I would love for kids to wake up in the morning and not even sometimes, you know, for a lot of kids that I work with, even oatmeal can be blood sugar imbalancing Absolutely. because of the amount of sugar um, and oatmeal itself sometimes can be, but some kids just don't do well with um, that kind of breakfast.
0: Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. And it's, you, know, uh, you mentioned a challenge, your dosa challenge, uh, which is a very common uh, food in India to eat for breakfast as well mm-hmm. as lunch. But it's it's very uh, filled with protein and mm-hmm. other ingredients, and um, so Dr. Sarathi has a uh, dosa challenge that you can uh, find on her uh, uh, Instagram. That's where I saw it, right on Instagram. Yes. And, and I have a link to its functional nutrition
1: for kids slash uh, dosa, so you can get there. Functionalnutritionforkids.com yes. dot slash dosa, but it's a free challenge. And like you said, it's, um, it's, it's a very common South Indian um, breakfast slash snack, um, but it could really be any meal and it could, it's generally made with a combination of rice and lentils. That's infinitely customizable. You can just, if you are so sensitive to carbs, then you can just make it purely lentils. But here's, here's another like plus point. A lot of people, at least a lot of my Indian friends will say that they're going low carb and they can't eat a dosa. And it always surprises me because a dosa is a fermented food. And depending on the degree of, the whole idea behind fermentation is carbs are,
2: mm-hmm. are,
1: you know, uh, fermented into other products. Okay, right. so, and so the whole idea of fermentation is that the carb load is reduced. Now, how much it's reduced, I have no idea. It depends on how fermented your batter is, right? So if you can get a, and that's why people who can't drink milk can have yogurt because of fermentation. I mean, the whole idea is that you simply your carb, and if, you know, for example, we're talking about, um, I don't remember if it's the gaps or SCD, but I think it's in the SCD that you are allowed to have yogurt that's fermented for 24 hours. The logic being that all of the milk sugar has now been converted, Mm -hmm. has been fermented, has been used up by the bacteria and yeast. The same is true, thankfully, for the dosa batter. Is that even if you have rice in the dosa batter, which please do because it really makes the taste so much better. <laughs> and uh, if you're starting off and you want a nice, nice, tasty batter, I think I would recommend that. You're really not getting that. T- it's not like eating white rice, so right, right. Um, yeah,
0: so I was actually going <clears> to <throat> ask that question because you know, rice uh, by itself, you know, made fresh, is a high glycemic mm-hmm. uh, type of food, right? Uh, Yes. And
1: dosas are not high glycemic. They're low glycemic. However, I've been looking for data and data and nobody has ever actually assessed of, you know, the way they assess glycemic index is by looking at ingredients. So people look at one cup of rice. Oh my God, it's high glycemic, but no, what's happened to the rice. Look at that. Look at the final product. And I don't think it's actually been through a lab. If anybody can find that data and send it to me, I'd be happy. But as, as a one person test subject, a person who's really sensitive to uh, sugar, like, you know, I can have energy crashes with just a little bit of, if I have a cup of white rice in the morning, I'm done. I have to take five naps in the day. <laughs> but, uh, but I've had a cup of dosa batter, which contains like, you know, like three fourth white rice. And just personally, I don't feel the effects of having a carb in the day when I have a dosa. But And it makes, you know, chemically, it makes sense because that's what fermentation is. Right. But yeah. But if you want more protein, um, I would, you can do a full lentil dosa Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and the deal with fermentation, as you know, is that it makes protein more bioavailable. So it's not the same as having a cup of lentils when it's fermented. It is now, I mean, you can forget about the phytate and the lectins and so on. You can, it's just much more bioavailable. That's
0: great. Yeah, That's great. I'm going to do that challenge uh, with my son, who's a chef uh, uh-huh. uh, at uh, Water Street Kitchen in Woods Hall. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm sure he'll get uh, he'll definitely have a blast making those with me. So I'm looking yeah. forward to that. So yeah, go to go to Instagram and find her and uh, yes. she'll, she'll, uh, she'll I love the videos that you have made and, and join her challenge. So, yes, please do. Let's, talk about, let's talk about, you mentioned the gaps in, in, you know, I want you to mention the gaps in the functional medicine approach when working with kids with autism and other disabilities. I, I'm sure uh, that occasionally people with autism and Down syndrome and other disabilities will um, meet with functional medicine doctors and but it's always done the same approach you know there's got to be things that you need to do differently and maybe they're missed i think it would be really good to talk about what those things are that really helps you to hone in with those specific diagnoses so and
1: you're talking from a diet perspective
0: right um any gaps whatever whatever gaps in, in any. oh
1: i thought you meant the gaps diet i'm sorry no 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 no
0: <laughs> No, okay the yeah. gaps in yeah, yeah okay so yeah in in um, the yeah. approach you know like where where what are what are, what are the gaps in the <clears throat> practitioners missing uh, in so, when it comes to th- this group of people yes absolutely so i'm
1: going to talk about two gaps and um, one gaps is gaps but uh, let's come back <laughs> sorry i will just uh, come back come to that later but here's the thing the diet rat hole or rabbit hole or whatever the word is is Mm -hmm. is the first gap is that you absolutely need a a, this can go both ways sometimes usually doesn't happen with functional medicine doctors but sometimes there are biomed doctors that are not necessarily functional medicine trained Mm -hmm. and um if if you're being told that this can be you know a diet is not that important this is definitely not true i have never met a single case of a child And we're not talking about curing or healing autism here. All I'm talking about is a child being comfortable enough to go to the next level, to be stabilized, regulated. I'm talking about regulation, okay? So if you are, if it cannot happen without a consistent 100% commitment to diet, it simply cannot happen. I've not seen it. The dysregulation will be a recurring problem as long as you're not 100% committed. Second is that a gluten-free, dairy-free diet is not a fix it because that can be as junky because it can be soup because you know if you're going to um, pancake mixes and that kind of stuff it can be very blood sugar imbalancing. So right. there's no diet that's going to work if it's not blood sugar balancing. So it's not it's not just the gluten and the dairy. Right.
2: Those
1: are those are your diets. And the third extreme of the diet situation is that you constantly have to hunt for the next diet, and this is very common in functional medicine. Is that I think it's time you try a paleo diet oh, I think it's time that you tighten it up to a GAPS diet. You know, maybe you should try an autoimmune paleo right now because I think that we need to tighten it. <clears throat> this, is, this is generally the thinking. And you have to ask yourself, what is it that I want from this diet?
2: Mm-hmm. What is
1: it that my son or daughter or my child is really struggling with? Because I've seen people that, are four, that have been for four years on the GAPS diet. And remember that many of the advanced diets are very carbohydrate restricting which means that this is going to have an impact on your microbiome diversity. Right. So you do need complex carbs. However, a short-term, I always think of restrictive diets as short-term fixes for specific problems. So it's very important that if you're being prescribed a diet, you know that I am trying to address pathogenic overgrowth. Therefore, I'm cutting down complex carbs and having only simple carbs. This is the time frame for which I'm going to follow this diet. And then I'm going to move back to a genetic, anti-inflammatory diet that does contain complex carbs. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, There are a lot of uh, the diet rabbit hole uh, of continuously searching for the next diet that's going to heal your child is a big gap in functional medicine
2: Mm. or
1: whether it's the next supplement or the next, where is your child still inflamed? That, That gap is not the diet. Once you have found a diet that you found to be reasonably stabilizing, the next gap is knowledge. Your child will never be regulated unless they can communicate on a level that's appropriate and respectful to them. Imagine that if I fed you the best foods and the best, and I put you on every diet and your body is super balanced, and I talk to you like a two-year-old, you're going to be dysregulated as hell. There is no way that you're going to be able to function in an environment, even if I fed you the most organic food every day and, and everything was perfect. But if I taught you two plus two is four and you had no way of telling me that I'm done with this, I've known this 20 years ago, but I keep teaching you because I don't think you understand it well. This is the biggest gap in functional medicine is to think that functional medicine is going to fix your child. It, it can help. It, it, it is the means to learning, but it, learning is learning. So eventually <laughs> you have to presume competence and it's only neural pathways um can only be built through challenging the brain through activity not through food right. food food clears the muddy waters food clears the area food clears the forest food makes a path available to you but you have to walk on that path and that is 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 the gap that um that you have to see how does your child communicate right if you have right. a non-speaking child can you find a way of communication that works for him or her so find that and <clears throat> So, if I have to put that in one sentence, is that your roots are the food your child up for a plant to be stable? You need the roots, and that is your anti inflammatory foods, your supplements, your uh, removing your toxin overload. All of that is like finding your roots. But in order to grow the, fer- the, the manure, the fertilizer, the, that, that is knowledge and that's learning. And right. Both right. of these need to be in place for a plant to grow. Right.
0: So, you, you said to presume competence. You want to presume competence at at some point and start teaching and creating a plan for learning. So is is that different from assuming intelligence? What does it mean? That's a great question.
1: Presume competence is now it's becoming a little bit of a buzzword where basically earlier we used to think that our kids were broken and now we understand that there are biochemical issues, but your child is still a whole human being. Assuming intelligence is my word for taking it one step further. Is that don't just presume competence, because competence can be anything. I'm What I'm saying is actively assume that your child is intelligent. Here's the thing. When you assume intelligence, you will see it. Assumption of intelligence reveals intelligence, right? So because when I, for example, my child has every diagnosis in the book that calls for intellectual disability, Down syndrome, autism, and non-speaking. He was once diagnosed to be in the 0.1 percentile of intelligence in his peers, which means that 99.9% of his age peers are smarter than him, which is absolutely not true. But that was what we were told when he was three years old because he couldn't communicate. What I did, even when he couldn't communicate is um, with inspiration from others, is uh, I started teaching him addition. And it didn't matter if he was listening to me or not. I just assumed that what's the worst that can happen, he doesn't understand, that's my, I'm gonna teach him. He used to look at me, and wh- when I was showing him addition stuff, and then when he stopped looking at me, instead of thinking, "Oh, he doesn't get it," I moved to multiplication, and then when he stopped looking at me, I moved to exponents. This is what assuming intelligence is—that your child doesn't have to prove, because proving is a fine motor skill. Right? They do- they do not have to prove that they can get it. You just take them. You assume that they're capable, and that is what is called in. Um, disability literature as the least dangerous assumption. The least dangerous assumption is that your child is smart, because the worst that can happen is that maybe they're not. But if we're going to go to, you know, on a deathbed thinking that I've taught my child too much, that's not a bad thing. Right, but right. the other worst case scenario is that your child did understand everything. And this is, as we know now, it's true more than 90% of the case. And if we're going to go to our deathbed thinking, "Oh my, I taught my child addition for the for his entire life," he's actually a fully smart, functional human being. That is a huge load
0: to bear. <clears throat> Absolutely, so, yeah. I think sometimes people think that they don't want to pressure their child. They you're they assume that they can't do it, and they don't want to pressure their child uh, to do something that they think is they're not capable of doing. And I think challenging them and. F- finding that out, I think in whatever way that the child and you communicate with each other uh, is probably um, the better path <laughs> because then you could always, you know, show them kindness and compassion about the results as opposed to saying, you know, well, you know, it's good to try. It's good to challenge yourself. And if you, do, if you can't do it, you can't do it, but it's, let's see how far you can take it. You know, so I think there is a, uh, there's definitely, definitely
1: there's a balance between that right. and uh, there is no by no means do I advocate pressurizing a child because if you're there then mm-hmm. we're looking for output again we're looking for we're testing the child that is not something I, I'm, I'm just saying share information with Absolutely. joy yeah. and share age appropriate information with joy so which is like when you're share, when you're talking to a 13 year old talk like you're talking to a 13 year old right. just because they're autistic and non-speaking or just because they have down syndrome doesn't make them a five-year-old they're still a 13 year old so give them yeah. You don't. Pressurizing happens when we're expecting something back.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So right. and yeah. So it. This is. Um,
0: and, and just and making a, it. Yeah. Yes, that's a great distinction. And but I yeah. think it's important for us to talk about that because I don't even think the parents realize it's it's an unconscious bias right that mm-hmm. they're making they don't even realize that they're doing it so absolutely yeah so it's really important to just put that out there as we're talking no about- i'm glad you brought that topic up that's really important because so much
1: nuance is in there this isn't a topic that even in the few minutes that we've been speaking clarifies itself by any means there is there's so much nuance in presuming competence versus adding pressure Versus, I mean, especially if you're talking to a South Asian section of society, this is very easily interpreted as kill your child with homework, right? So that's not what I'm talking about.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly, yes, yes. And in yeah. all other cultures too, it's not just South Asian. So yeah, so yeah. So we're, we're coming to the end of our time, but I would love for you to add anything at, at this point that we haven't discussed that you think is so important that uh, my audience knows when it comes to this topic? At the risk of repeating
1: myself, I think it's really important that you start every journey with your child with, um, <clears throat> with the assumption that they're fully capable of being regulated. And this regulation is, uh, the path to this regulation is through food. As you know, food is the single most frequent intervention we put in our body, food is medicine, food is everything. So when you can get started, and uh, if you just want one place to get started, just get started with a blood sugar balancing meal, and but there, find your way into an anti-inflammatory um, diet pathway for your child, and and then from there, just once your child is comfortable, remember that your child is is completely capable of learning whatever it is that they want to learn. Right. So, right. Yeah.
0: Great. Great. Yeah. Thank you for all of that information. And it's such, it gives people so much hope I'm sure. And, uh, and I wish you luck on your journey and helping, uh, whoever reaches out for, uh, to work with you. Yeah. yeah it's, thank it's huge, you. You're a huge resource. I've had uh, a patient who had autism and he was, uh, I'm going to say he was about, I think 18 years old. Um, and his mother had Uh, reached out to me because her last option was to put him in a group home because he Mm -hmm. was very aggressive and had a lot of emotional issues and he was on five medications and they were not controlling his symptoms uh, to the degree that they needed to in order for him to be at home, and you know, neat at that point was you know he needs to be in a group home, and she didn't want to put him in a group home, so mm-hmm. she thought uh, to work with me, and we were able, and it took a few years, <laughs> definitely mm-hmm. took some time. Fortunately, he was totally on board because sometimes when we're working with kids, they're not on board with changing food at all. Um, mm. Fortunately, he was, and uh, really took to eating a gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free diet and adding in all the vegetables and, and healthy fats and uh, was able to uh, do the, you know, we cleared the gut, improved the detoxification system, did all of the, the things that we normally do with. Uh, mm-hmm. And he was able to come off of four of the five medications.
1: That and, is amazing. Yeah,
0: yeah, and now he's living independently, has a part-time job. Um, Mm -hmm. Oh, he also had motor ticks, which significantly decreased. And uh, he's doing great. And you would hardly know that that he even has autism at this point. Hmm. You would hardly know that. Um, Mm -hmm. Occasionally, you'll see the the motor tick uh, when he gets nervous or Mm -hmm. stressed. But for the most part, you know, when he's happy and calm. He, he doesn't have any issues. So he's doing really, really well. And so there's definitely hope and, you know, and he was able to move out of the home, but live independently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Yes. I love great. that. Yeah. And so I think yeah. he's, he's in his twenties now, but he's doing mm-hmm. great. Yeah.
1: So this was, this was the, I, I know you have a protocol. This was the diet and getting
0: started with diet. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the thing about him though, he was able to put gluten back into his diet. Okay. So, yeah. And so uh, many times when you heal the gut and, you know, really address digestion and these pathogens, these chronic pathogens and detox pathways and heal the gut lining, the increased gut permeability, sometimes you can reintroduce some of these foods, you know, it depends. Yes. It depends on the person. Absolutely. Everybody's different. Everybody's yes. different, Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely hope out there. Uh, I, you know, I've had a few patients with autism, never a patient with down syndrome, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, I feel, and certainly lots of people with attention and anxiety and depression and OCD. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's definitely um, some definitely can improve symptoms and, you know, may and with doing the entire, all of the things that can be done, all the layers address all the yes. layers. Then, you know, and there you can, are unfortunately so many layers, but yeah, <laughs> I know then, you know, but you can really give a person's life back. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So thank you so much for sharing uh, what you do with us. And, uh, and I really, uh, I, I am going to share your, this video with some people who are actually doing research on autism, just to, you know, put it out there, like you gotta listen to this, you know. Yes. Uh, thank at you. Brown at Brown University. And uh because I know several people who are doing research in autism and they they need to see this, they need to learn that this is something that should be part of their treatment protocols. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well thank you. Thank you, thank you, Atina. <laughs> For right. talking to you. Yeah, thanks again. Yeah. Thank you for joining me in this podcast episode. I hope that you will join me in the future. If you are interested in working with me, please go to www.achinasteindo.com to book a discovery call. There you may also download for free the first three chapters of my book. I hope my work enlightens you, gives you hope, and moves you forward on your journey to a better mood and fulfilling life.